All right, John chapter 1. This is part 16 in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. The title of the message today is called The Abundant Grace of Christ. We're going to start reading verse 14 through 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He who comes after me has been before me, for he was preceding me. And out of his fullness we all have received, and grace for grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at verse 14, the very end, the part of the phrase that said that Christ was full of grace and truth. We talked about that contrast of where we came from. Remember the earlier part of the first chapter here talks about light shining in darkness and darkness didn't comprehend it. So we talked about by this grace that he is full of, grace and truth is the means to pull us to this other side to show us enlighten us, illuminate us to the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And seeing his glory, he did a whole message on the glory of God in that context. We talked about this, uh, was an irreversible change that took place in us that, that actually affected our life. It changed our life, especially the way we think. And if you think different, I don't care what it is, if you think different, you're going to do things different. And there are a lot of pulpits, when they talk about change, they just go automatically to a legalistic idea. New set of rules that they can't keep. You know, even if they make an adjustment to lower the standard, that's just about what they're making it out to be. But this is a total change of mind because the Spirit gives us a new heart in, uh, in this gospel context. And we think differently about who we are, about who God is, about who Christ is, about how we should treat one another, how we should, what our motives and things are, our incentives for obeying God and all that he says. So everything changes. And we know the ground and basis of this change is primarily our legal status or our legal position has changed, and that is uh, justification. We're all familiar with that, how that works. The fruit of that, of course, is the new birth, and we studied that in verse 13, talking about who were born of God not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh. So in this new birth process we're given, and it's going to be talking about that heavily in John chapter 3 when we get there, when Christ is dealing with Nicodemus, we'll camp there for a little while and talk about that. But we're given spiritual life. It's imparted to us. We get a new heart, and uh, which is the mind. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who comes to us, gives us life and dwells in us and never leaves and constantly works in us both the will and do of God's good pleasure, leads us unto all truth. There's all kind of, he's a comforter, all these different things that the Spirit does. And we'll be looking into those things as we go through John because the Spirit of God is talked about. So we're given a mind to know, believe, and understand, and love God. So that's what happens to make this change that we're talking about. We have here lately, last couple of years, have gone to that text in Ephesians 1, talking about the power that it took to work in the believer to spiritually raise him up from the dead and give him faith. And it's the same power 
that we just sang in a song there, Low in the Grave He Laid. It talked about nothing could hold him back. He tore the bars away. And that, that's also what happens to us in Irresistible Grace when the Spirit comes in power with the power of the gospel. There is nothing stopping the spiritual resurrection of the believer. I had mentioned, it was kind of a weird way to say it, but I mentioned in times past that when life is imparted, as far as the sinner's concerned, I say this in a context against false religion that says you need to exercise your free will to bring this on yourself. But when this, is, this process starts of the Spirit giving you life, imparting life to you, giving you eyes to see, giving you a new mind, it's too late. It has happened to you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't think there's anything you want to do to change it anyway, because it's great. So it's, it's an affection. In other words, it's an effectual happening to you. We will look more at this grace and truth, because verse 17 also deals with this grace and truth when he compares and contrasts Christ to Moses. So we'll be spending more time on that in the weeks to come. And I will from time to time be taking a break in John and doing some topical things. We're going to look at verse 15, starting verse 15 today and uh, move through some of these verses. Don't know how far along we'll get. Verse 15, this is uh, the Apostle John writing about John the Baptist. John bore witness of him, speaking of Christ, and cried out. John cried out saying, this is he of whom I spoke. He who comes after me has been before me, for he was preceding me. Now, John the Baptist, he was the, the last Old Testament prophet. Christ was the prophet that bridged the gaps between old and new. He dealt with old and he dealt with the new covenant. So, but John really was the, really the last one besides Christ to speak about these things concerning the covenants and what they meant and who Christ was. And he bore witness of the word that is spoken of in our chapter, who is the Son of God. And we'll look more at John, too, because there's some later on, there's some more about John, and we're not going to spend too much time on him, because even John himself will tell you that the focus is Christ and not himself. John the Baptist was spoken of to be one of the most humble men that ever lived, and uh, he said, you know, I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoestrings or shoelaces because he is preferred before me. And we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. There's a couple different versions that we're going to look at of different Bible versions to help us know what these next couple of lines mean. And hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Verse 15 there, the first part says, saying, speaking of John, saying that this is he, speaking of Christ, whom I spoke of. So after he gets his, our attention about who he's talking about, which is Christ, he says this about Christ. He who comes after me has been before me, for he was preceding me. Now, I want to go to Luke chapter 1 and get some context. It's kind of a lengthy reading, but it lays out exactly what John was talking about here. If you go to Luke chapter 1, we can go ahead and read some of that starting in verse 5, and I'm reading from the modern King James Version. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abijah, and his wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. 
So put your mind in the context of Old Covenant. This was John the Baptist's dad was a priest in the Old Covenant. And they practiced the Old Covenant and all the things that were laid out in the Old Testament, things that you do as far as sacrifices and ceremonies that pictured and typified and shadowed who Christ was to come. Verse 7, And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in their days. And it happened in his serving in the order of his house before God, speaking of the priesthood, According to the custom of priests, it was his lot to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And all the multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him as he was standing on the right of the altar of incense. And seeing this, Zacharias was troubled and fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, do not fear, Zacharias. For your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he shall turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, But what shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in her days. And answering the angel said unto him, I am Gabriel who stands before God. And I am sent to speak to you and to show you these glad tidings. And behold, you shall be silent and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because you do not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that. He had seen a vision in the temple, and he was making signs to them and remained speechless. So Zacharias came out, you know, after being made dumb by the angel because of his unbelief of him having he's going to have a child. He didn't know sign language, obviously, and he starts kind of making up whatever signs to try to tell people what just happened. Of course, it's pretty impossible, but... um that's the situation so far there. Verse 23, And as soon as the days of his service were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, The Lord has dealt with me in the days in which he looked on me to take away my reproach from among men. And the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Hail, one receiving grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying 
and considered what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not fear, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I do not know a man? Notice the language there. We've gone over this before. It's been a while talking about, I think last time we dealt with this, talking with Matthew 7, where it says, Depart from me, I never knew you. And talked about that word know and knew, how that it means, has to do with affection and relationship here. And same with Adam. Adam knew Eve and they conceived Cain, Abel, Seth, whatever. That's the way she's using this language here. Talking about intimacy here with a man because she was a virgin. And the angel, verse 35, answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit shall come on you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One, which will be born of you, shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose. Notice how Mary, I mean, she asked a question how How's this going to work? Because I'm, I'm a virgin. And then the angel told her, and she's like, no problem. Do it. I'm interested. Unlike Zacharias that kind of doubted it, and, of course, he had to be quiet for a while so he could listen instead of talk. <laughs> Sometimes that's what we got to do when we get like that. Verse 39, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah. And she entered to the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Again, Elizabeth was her cousin. And it happened as Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, speaking of Christ. And from where is this to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me. For lo, as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Is she, and blessed is she who believes, for there shall be a perfecting of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Okay, this is Mary, who the Roman Catholics say herself was immaculately conceived, which is a lie. But they say that she's perfect and sinless, but yet here she says that she needs a Savior. She talks about God, my Savior. Savior from what? She's a sinner. She needs a Savior. Verse 48, for he looked on the humiliation of the slave woman. For behold, from now all the generations shall count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him, 
from generation to generation. He has worked power with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. He has put down rulers from their seats and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to the fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and returned to her own house. And the time was fulfilled to Elizabeth for her to bear. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and her kinsfolk heard about the Lord had magnified his mercy with her. And they rejoiced with her. Remember, she kind of hid away for a few months because it looked weird that she couldn't bear. Now she's big belly and it was like miraculous. So they were just keeping it undercover. Zacharias was old. She hid out until it was time to bear. And then there was this rejoicing here that happened through her uh, friends and family. And it happened on the eighth day. They came to circumcise the child and were calling it Zacharias after his father's name. And his mother answered and said, no, but he shall be called John. They said to her, there's none of your kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father as to how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote saying his name is John. And they marveled, and his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosened. And he spake and praised God. And fear came upon them that lived around them, and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard laid them up in their hearts, saying, What kind of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from eternity, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he had sworn to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God, by which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of the depth of the death to guide our feet the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his showing to Israel. There's a big history there of, of a lot of things that fit with our text. I know it was a long reading, but it 
covered a lot of stuff, and I'm not going to go verse by verse and explain what those things are. I mean, most of them are self-explanatory. Notice in verse 79, it kind of fits with what we've been talking about the past few weeks, of our own experience and being shown the gospel. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's that conversion experience that turned our world upside down. And I brought us there to show the timing of the statement here in our text concerning the fact that Christ was before, eternally, of course, before John, before John the Baptist. We'll kind of unpack this as we go. Some of the versions are a little bit different. The truth in the different versions are true according to other scripture. Using the the King James here, I want to show us a distinction here. In the King James, it says this, He that cometh after me is preferred before me for or because he was before me. I like the King James in these couple lines here. I think it's saying what it needs to say because there are two different words used and we'll look at each one. The word before is used two different ways. The first word before means in front of, in place or time or before in presence or sight of. The second word, before, means foremost or chief. And this is, this is when we start looking at the preeminence of Christ. We see that reoccurring idea in the scripture of Christ. We can go to a text like, for example, in Colossians, it says that he was before all things. And there's other, other statements like that. We can think of that in time or we can think of that in importance. And they're both true. So here it, it does use the two words. And again, I think the King James is right here when it says, He that cometh after me is preferred before me because he was before me. So he's saying two things. He's saying he has preeminence. He's more important than me. That's why the emphasis of the humility of John, I think, was emphasized in the, in the New Testament. And then it says, he was before me. If you think about it, think about the eternal word of God, who is God, and he was eternal. Automatically, you're saying, you're going to want to say he's preferred before me. He's God. He knows more than me. I mean, I'm nobody compared to this one that is preferred before me and came before me. So in every way you can think of, Christ was before John. And John the Baptist realizes that and worships Christ because of that. And that's what we should glean from that. We should have the same attitude and promote that idea in our doctrine. So verse 16, it says, and again, I'm going to kind of use some different versions here. And I'm using the modern King James here when I read this. And out of his fullness, we have received and grace for grace. Out of his fullness. The word fullness here. We looked at full of grace and truth a couple weeks ago, and this word is very similar. It's related to it. Here it means completion, what fills, what is filled up, to fill up, or fulfilling. But the King James says, of his fullness. Now imagine some people could read that and understand that it means out of his fullness. The idea is it's coming from his fullness. His fullness is what's driving what is coming out of it. Out of his fullness, referring to the fact that 
in verse 15 that he is full of grace and truth. Just happens to be very beneficial to grab things in, in the very context that we're dealing with. That's that's obvious. He's full of grace and truth. That meant, if I remember right, that had to do with completely full and abundant and running over more than enough is the idea. And out of that is what they're talking about here. Let's go to Revelation 21. I had mentioned last week when we talked about full of grace and truth that Christ, he's a fountain. He talked of himself as these things coming, flowing from him to his people. Grace and truth flows from Christ himself. Revelation 21, start in verse 1. I know people have different arguments about the timing of certain things mentioned in Revelation. A lot of controversy over that. And uh, and I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to schedule a week's vacation and stop, drop, to try to figure this out. I see something in here that has to do with our past experience in, in our conversion. But uh, some of this stuff more than likely is future. It talks about this new earth right here in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer is. And I, John, now this is, remember, the same author of the Gospel of John. This is the Apostle John writing this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this is talking about God's people. This is not talking about buildings in a city. You know, I mean, I'm sure people have tried to draw on artist renditions of what this is looking like, this heavenly city descending down like it's buildings or something. It's talking about people. We know about the word Jerusalem when it's used. We know about the bride when it's used. And we know who the husband is. This version is capital, speaking of Christ. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, I don't think there's any arguing. We've got that right now. I know it's going to be somewhat different in our glorified state because we'll see him face to face, see him as he is. But when we live by faith and walk in the Spirit and we view things the way we should view them, this is what we see. When we start looking at our circumstances or looking inside ourselves, this is the furthest thing from what we see. We see the chaos of the world, and we don't see this right here. This is what we need to see all the time, right now. Verse 4, And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying out, nor will there be any pain for the first things passed away. Now, think about the idea. I mean, this would be a good message just to do by itself. But think about the idea of the new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. Now, that's in Second Corinthians, I think, 5.17. But... When Paul was pinning that in 2 Corinthians, he wasn't talking about some type of future heavenly thing. He was talking about the change that we have just been talking about, of coming out of darkness into the marvelous light and having this treasure in earthen vessels to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And 
the idea of things, old things passing away and all things becoming new has got change written all over it. And it affects the way we think. We have a new mind to see this. And really, there is no excuse not to see this all the time. Easier said than done in verse 4 where it talks about all the problems that we have, about the tears, about the you know, death, you can't stop death. The mourning, the crying out, uh, I mean, pain. I got a headache right now. My neck is, I know people have it way worse than me, but you read things like pain, and when you say the word pain, your head's going throbbing. <laughs> I need to take a pill right now. But there's there's worse pain than the headache pain or neck pain. There's uh, you know psychological, emotional pain that sometimes people just wanna they wanna kill themselves. That stuff's gonna be over with. That stuff you won't be dependent on faith to exercise your mind in the sovereignty of God to alleviate your anxiety. Your sin will be no more. You won't have anxiety anymore. You won't be dabbling in unbelief. Your mind will be aligned with the mind of God. Your ways will be conformed to his ways completely to where all those problems will be a thing of the past. Verse 5, and he sitting on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write these, uh, write for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. Now, here's why I brought us here. I am the Alpha, this is Christ speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who thirsts, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. He's talking about himself. He is that fountain. Truth and grace flow from him. Without him being the source, there is no truth and grace. He's the, uh, we've talked about all the things that he is, and we have mentioned that these posters up here describe the things. We, in, in the first few verses, referring to the word word, his name, of course, describes who he is, especially in the reference of being true or the truth. Go back to John there in our text, and we'll continue on. The next part of the phrase says, it says that we just looked at, out of his fullness, what? We all have received. Let's be reminded that we are merely receivers. We're on the receiving end. We are needy. And he shows mercy and grace because we are unworthy in ourselves. We're not producers. We are receivers. We're not producers of grace. We're not producers of truth, either one. We're receivers. And, of course, as always, I, I talk about this a lot. We want to note that this grace, I'm just trying to say this, is not conditional. You might be saying, why do you keep reminding us of this, Scott Price? Why do you keep saying it? Well, there's, there's levels of subtlety where people would try to lie about that. Let me give you an example. In Peter and in James, they quote 
Proverbs 3.34. And it says, and why bring this up? Because I've, I've heard people bring forth this argument who claim to be sovereign grace Calvinist book reform trying to make this statement conditional. And, the, and the, the text says this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So do you think people can turn that into a conditional promise? <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I mean, isn't that kind of like, to me it's a no-brainer, but it's you just shoot yourself in the foot. You just uh, you can talk and talk and talk about grace and then turn around and say, here's how you set up conditions to get this grace. So my question is, who makes proud people humble to begin with? I mean, it seems like there should be this totally new separate doctrine. I'm surprised there's not. Maybe there is. That is packaged in such a way that teaches people you get from this totally depraved state to this state of humility, and then God gives you grace. I'm surprised it's not called something. Besides foolishness and stupidity, I'm surprised it doesn't have a, a title. And people, it packaged in such a way that people snatch it up. Do we earn grace by first being humble? That's ridiculous. We have to learn how to interpret these, these things in their context. Now, back on this, this phrase, um, there's four different versions where it talks about the abundance of grace toward the end there. One of them says, and grace for grace. One says, and grace over against grace. Another says, and grace upon grace. And one says, and grace on top of grace. And to me, they're all saying the same thing. So this grace that we get, let me emphasize, we get, we're the receivers. We get from him. It's because he is the abundant source of grace. Remember, it's said that he's full of grace. So you see, it's looking at grace. It's almost, it reminds, this text reminds me of, um, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Kind of reminds me of some of that language, and you've got to decipher what they're talking about. From faith to faith, for example, and, and there's there's different theories on what that, at least three. Uh, the one that I've concluded that it means is from faith, from the faith, the message, the record, the gospel, to faith of the one believing the record. Here refers to this Christ who's full of grace is the source that gives grace to the people that now possess grace. And that grace is... Abundant in Christ, and when they have it, it's abundant in them, and it's just piles. I mean, you can use all kind of uh, adjectives to describe, and we're going to go to a text. Go to Romans 5. Let's look at some language here that kind of describes some of this grace. Uh, sometimes when I post things on social media, some people say, are you one of those hyper-grace guys? 
hyper meaning more than. You know, you see a kid that's running around with a lot of energy, they're hyperactive. Well, technically speaking, you could talk about this grace as hyper grace. There's a lot of it. It works. It's powerful. It don't stop. You keep getting more. It doesn't run out. Christ is the fountain. We're hooked up to that source. And you could go on and on. Verse 17, Romans 5, 17. Now, the whole chapter is good, but I had to start somewhere to save time. For by one man's offense, speaking of Adam, death reigned or ruled by one. He was the one it ruled by. He, Adam was the federal head and representative of the whole human race. And because of him taking that fruit that he wasn't supposed to, death, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Death reigned by one, by Adam, on everybody. Look at the mathematical language here. Much more easy to understand. Not the same as, not less than, but much more. They who received, look at this word, abundance, that's a lot, of grace, and the gift, we know when it talks about gift, it's connected to grace. Everything that God gives is by grace unmerited by us the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ therefore by one offense Adam the sentence came on all men to condemnation that legal declaration of guilt even so the righteousness of one the free gift came to all men to justification of life now I'm sure I'm not going to get any argument out of everybody. This is this all men to justification in life is talking about those that are justified because we know not all men without exception are justified or going to be justified. This is talking about the elect. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. Ooh, look at the language there. It sounds kind of like 2 Corinthians 5.21, doesn't it? Yeah. So, by the obedience of one, many be made righteous, speaking of Christ. But the law entered so that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, here's the spooky hyper-grace part, grace did much more abound. And you know what? This is like every time. It's talking about the one-time event of comparing these two heads Adam and Christ but even the outworking of it in the individual elect it supersedes condemnation every time all the time individually with God's people and in verse 21 it says so that as sin has reigned or ruled to death even so grace might reign through righteousness, to eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So anything that we had in Adam was just peanuts compared to what we have in Christ. Even before Adam's fall, we could say that. that what we have in Christ compared to what Adam had even before the fall is much more than. So there is no other cause of God loving, electing, 
justifying, pardoning, adopting, regenerating, giving eternal life, except for the free sovereign grace of God. There is no other cause. This is grace. And not only that, it's done in such a way that is true. Not only because God says it in his wisdom, in his logic, in his omniscience, and as Christ being the word, he does things in a true way that's measured out in a just way. His justice is satisfied and magnified, and that enables and, and makes God to be just when he justifies. So there's truth in that. God's faithful to his character when he does that. He justifies the ungodly, and he's just when he does it through the work of Christ. And the, the unregenerate scratch their head and look at that and say, that don't make sense. Of course, you're in darkness, right where we were before he opened our eyes to see that truth. I was reading John Gill on this. And he made this statement. He said that it is grace for the sake of grace. I didn't see him really finish up the thought. and I kind of understood what he said, and I went with this. God's sovereign way of dispensing his salvation to his people and showing his glory is grace for the sake of grace. It was found in him. You read Ephesians, you look at all the things that point back to him, his purpose, his will, his pleasure. The thing that he purposed in himself was, as Moses said, show me your glory. He says, all right, I'll have mercy on whom I want and I'll harden whom I want. That was his glory connected to his grace. Grace for the sake of grace on a certain people, a remnant of people. This is what I want to do. This is what I've decided to do. I'm doing it in a way that it's true. And, you know, the majority of people aren't going to see it. They're not going to care. They're actually going to hate it. But I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for these ones that I love. And then, of course, Christ and the Father, their exchange that happened between them, the attributes of each other were magnified in the process. And then we see it, we look at it, and it's just, we, we just live in it and grow in it the rest of our lives. And we don't stop growing. I mean, I've got some serious questions I want to ask. I don't think I'm going to get them answered before I die. So I'm going to save them and ask some questions about some particulars that are not clearly revealed. Sometimes we've got indications. We see it through a glass darkly, and there's just so much there. So this comes from a God who said of himself, that he cannot lie. Full of grace and truth. In conclusion, let's go to John 4. I just want to read one verse and we'll stop after that. This is the chapter of the woman at the well. Christ throughout all these chapters. And we'll be saying this as we go through, Lord willing, of something I saw years ago when you kind of skim through John. You see the confusion of human beings listening to the spiritual words of Christ, not understanding the spiritual aspect of them. Here it's talking about water. She's thinking it's H2O and he's talking about himself. You know, later he's talking about bread and they thinking he's talking about physical bread, you know, and he's talking about himself. And and on and on and on. A lot of things they got confused spiritual with physical. Verse 14. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. 
Now, for the most part, I know it's not perfect in the world, but you'll see, I don't know if anybody's ever seen a spring. My dad used to work for a spring water company right on the Indiana border. But you could go out and you can see these springs flowing up. They're not stopping. And they go under and they tap into them and they feed into things and they produce gallons and gallons and gallons of water. But uh, it's a sight to see, to see this water coming up from the ground and you're thinking, where's that coming from? It's not stopping. <laughs> well, this analogy here or illustration or Christ used to describe really himself and, and what comes from him to others is the spring that eternally does not stop. This is who he is in himself. And this should be an indication of when we just know what little we know about him now and are caused, moved out of thankfulness and gratitude to worship him for who he is. But I think we need to go further and not drop the ball. And I've seen this in ministries, and I kind of gripe about this, and I have historically here, of people that shut down the thinking process way too early. I mean, I could talk about it for hours. It's not good for preachers or ministers or teachers to stifle the thinking of God's people and cause them not to want to jump in this fountain and drink and drink and drink and ask more questions and drink and drink and seek and keep going instead of saying, ah, we're just a bunch of old dummies. We can't see nothing. And I've seen people like that for three decades and seen them go bust. See you later. I'm going this way. This Christ is full of grace and truth. And every day we can get something. We can get loads out of it. As much as we can take in. Sometimes it's it's hard to assimilate everything that we take in. And sometimes we take in so much that we can't write down quick enough the things that are coming to us. Sometimes we'll learn stuff and forget even. That's just how frail we are. But we need to, and I want to encourage everybody, to move forward on more about Jesus would I know and continue to feed off of him and to drink of him and to think of him and to promote him and make it your priority in this life because it's the most important thing in this life. Now you can't tell by the amount of people that are sitting here today. And you look at stuff like this, and I, I see right here this verse we just read, snooze you lose. And, you know, these people that are talking about that, I've heard this idea that uh, we're just a bunch of dummies. You can't, you can't, who, who do you think you are to say you know that about him? About basic things. They want to promote ignorance as humility. I mean, we do have enough ignorance in us. But let's not promote ignorance. Let's promote, uh, challenge our minds to go further because we seemingly, I am lazy and I should be learning more and going for more. But we should encourage, that's what the church is for, to encourage one another to move forward, run this race. And Christ is a prize. Look to him. Continue to learn about him. And not because the reward is I've got peace and assurance. That's good. I really don't study Christ to think, and the more I study, the more peace I'll have. That's not my incentive, but you know what? It works that way. It really does. The more you know about Christ, because 
knowledge is power in that sense in which God gives us not true knowledge. The God of grace that's full of grace and truth. He gives true knowledge. And it can only be beneficial to his people. And when you don't have knowledge and understanding and, and things like this, and you start thinking biblically irrational thoughts, unbiblical thoughts in other words, do you think it's helpful? What comes? What creeps in? Doubt, fear. And you start looking at legal motives. Not good. And wherever I see this, I'm going to call it out. I don't care if it's some guy that I've listened to for 30 years. It's not good. He's given us an understanding that we might know him. And we ought to be hungry all the time to stay hungry for his word, to learn about who he is. Not about silly, trivial things. I think some of you heard over the years my complaints about some of those things. But tap into this fountain. It's there. Christ is there with all his all of his offices that he holds. Anybody seen what I'm talking about? The last little bit? You've heard me complain about it for a long time. All right, I'm going to stop there. Any questions or comments?